0: This is a KSHSAA production.
1: First down from the 17
0: is where they mark it officially. Harris Hancock, breaks back at the 15-10-5
2: touchdown,
1: gain. Oh! down to the other end, misses, shot won't go up the gun, and Eudora comes from way behind and goes crazy.
0: Basketball is upon us. Welcome to the KSHSAA Podcast. I am Jeremy Holliday, and this is going to be a basketball podcast. Uh, Just a little preview. Uh, Throughout the show, I'm just going to give out some interesting tidbits about this year's tournaments and maybe some teams, uh, some history notes uh, involved with the boys' and girls' squads, and even some history on our sites that we host at. And also uh, Brent Unruh, our certified athletic trainer in our office and also our office manager, gives us a, a sports medicine, a moment to talk about how kids need to uh, treat their bodies and get rest when they're in between these games and the state tournament. And uh, we talk with Fran Martin about just a synopsis of the basketball season, some rules changes, uh, some emphasis. Uh, we talk about the shot clock that a lot of people have uh, questions questions about. And we also talk to Clint Stoppel of Heston High School, who the athletic director there, has qualified both teams, the boys and girls, in the state tournament, so we get his perspective on things as the state tournament comes around. Obviously, if you have not seen, the brackets are posted online at Keisha.org. You can go to the Score Center or the basketball page to check out each classification, uh, who this, what the seeds are, uh, what times the boys and girls games will be taking place, and and, and what sites. Uh, just a little quick, a uh, little History or little facts about the tournament here. This is the 104th annual boys basketball tournament. It'll be the 43rd annual girls tournament. Uh, we have It's been hosted in 18 cities. That's 18 cities that have hosted the boys and girls tournament. And in addition to that, there's been four uh, cities that had just hosted the girls tournament. Uh, and Hutchinson at the 3A tournament is hosted 72 years at the Hutchinson Sports Arena and 41 consecutive years. So big thanks to them. They always do a great job. Uh, but amazing amount of years they've hosted the, uh, the state tournament for us and, and at 1A and Emporia Division 1 that is that they've hosted 69 years and they've had 61 consecutive years at Wyatt Memorial Auditorium and another one of note is in Topeka at 5A and the Expo, Expo Center uh, or the city of Topeka has hosted the state tournament 57 times and they've had 37 consecutive years hosting the basketball state tournament so a big thanks to them and those communities uh, what an awesome job they do for us Let's look at a couple interesting points of fact here with the boys' tournament involving the teams that have qualified, uh, whether it be 6A through 1A. And then look at McPherson, who has won it 12 times, uh, 53 appearances in the state tournament. And then the last championship they had was obviously just last year, and they won their first championship in 1972. Uh, Twice they won three straight, from 72 to 74 and 90 to 92. Uh, Two undefeated seasons, going for their third Uh, undefeated championship season, so uh, watch out for the the bullpups there as their boys team looks to take a state crown again. Another thing to note is that 2A, the St. John Hudson boys, who is looking to go back-to-back in their state championship run and also be only the third team in history to have back-to-back championships coming on an undefeated season. St. John Hudson isn't alone in that 2A tournament as Olpe is undefeated as well, and they'll be going for their first undefeated season and championship in the same year. Before we talk about the girls' points of interest, uh, we're going to go talk to Fran Martin first about synopsis of the basketball season this year. Okay, we welcome back Fran Martin to the podcast. I believe last time we talked to you was around cross-country time. Um, it seems like that was not too long ago, but now basketball is almost over with. Yeah,
2: <laughs> we're winding up a great season and and so far of our sub-state weeks we've had you know a gr- good weather and past two years we've dealt with a lot of snow this year it was nice not to deal with quite so much snow a uh, few little possibilities and and it looks like the weather's going to be great next week for our state tournament so we hope everybody will get out and watch the kids they they've all had great years and and it's the culmination of a great time for them or a great season and some of them are playing their last basketball games and some will get to go on to the next level and and show their talent there
0: it's always interesting week when substate comes because we look at the weather and what's projected and sure enough, email will come out but hey let's remember, remember to do this if something happens, and I think that's maybe just a a superstition thing. hey, if we send an email out it won't happen, yeah. so maybe that's why
2: <laughs> well we we hope we we hope we always have good weather, but uh, the past two years we've had some challenges and just making sure that everybody's on the same page because obviously when when there are cancellations somebody feels like well they got an advantage because they got an extra day or they didn't get a you know practice because of this so you know it, it's better for all of our managers we try to send something out to them ahead of time making sure that they know if we have bad weather here are our options here's what we can do um.
0: So, sub-state's coming, or going on right now, state coming up. Let's take a look back at the season. Um, I know, starting off with some rules changes and maybe some emphasis here, if we look at the hand-check rule or defenders defending the ball, some rules that may have changed this year. I know we watch uh, college basketball and it might be getting called more, some people don't think it's getting called enough, but what have you noticed with this new rule and in the high school
3: level?
2: The, the the rule change, really, it wasn't a change. It was more of a making it a point of emphasis and actually putting in the rule what was supposed to have been being called for years. Uh, but sometimes if it's in black and white, it's a little bit less open to interpretation. So the actual rule that was written into the rule book simply said that um, when guarding a ball handler, there has to be freedom of movement. We have to allow them the opportunity to go where they should be, can go legally. Um, so defenders, um, we have what we call automatics. If a defender puts two hand on the on the ball handler, that's supposed to be an automatic foul. Place an extended arm bar on the on the player. In other words, I've got my arm bar and then I extend it. I can have an arm bar, but if I extend it, now we've got a foul. Uh, placing and keeping one hand on the defender. Um, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, say, well, that's just sizing them up. Well, sizing them up. You know, you you. You, you, you may be able, touch them with one hand, but if you leave the hand there, then we ought to have a foul called. And then um, contacting them with, we have some kids who like to, you know, I'll put one hand on them, then I'll put another hand on them, then I'll put another hand on them, back and forth. And, and you know, part of it is just trying to jab them in the stomach and get to them and get into their head. Um, that is also what we what we refer to now in the officiating world world as automatics um would you like to see every one of those called every single time they happen you bet um but I think uh at the beginning of the season we probably did a pretty good job of that I think that you know there's there's always that period in the season where we get a little bit lax um and then as we start to get lax people start to to complain a little bit and then we realize oh we we got to take care of that so um and and I and quite frankly you know just like in anything I think we're, some of our areas of the state have probably done a better job of getting it called and getting it called right, um, and some of our areas of the state have, have lagged a little bit behind. But as we work towards our postseason officials, they're all communicated exactly the same message, um, you know. and since they're being assigned out of our office, uh, we do have a lot better contact with them. Um, and, and certainly the same thing will be true for our 144 officials that will work our state tournament next week. You know, again, the the goal of a, officials is to try to to, to provide a, a an environment where the rules are being fairly adjudicated for both teams. And fans sometimes think, well, gosh, the, you know, the fouls are nine to one or ten to one. We're not, you know, we're getting hosed. And and why is this happening? Well, a lot of times it has to do with the type of defense that a team is playing. You know, if I'm playing an aggressive man-to-man defense. I'm probably going to pick up a lot more fouls than the team that's sitting back in the zone. And so I think a lot of times people get the misconception that if the foul count isn't equal, then the game isn't being called fairly. And that's probably the farthest thing from the truth.
0: And there's a number of times you kind of address that in your newsletter. And for those that don't know, Fran puts a, or announcement, I should say, weekly announcement on the website, a number of times she's addressed the fact that Listen, the officials are out there to work with you as coaches and work with you as players. You're all in this together. No one's against each other.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I spend, I spend quite a bit of time trying to reemphasize the point that everybody has a role. Um, the coach's role is to coach the game. It's not to try to help the officials or, um, you know, incite the crowd. The, the official's role, their job is to adjudicate rules. They need to know the rules and they need to apply them. As, the best that, as best that they can. You know, we talk with officials a lot about if you get in the right position, we really believe that you'll make the right call. But sometimes when we get out of position and we get straight line, we don't. Um, you know, the role of the player is to play the game and enjoy it and not to argue and, and, I guess, less than sportsmanlike towards the other teams. And then the fans in the stands, we want you to cheer for your teams and be supportive. But quite frankly, when you're yelling at the officials or you're yelling at the kids, it's probably not, making for a positive in event for anyone. So support your team, support your kids, but try to keep the negative behaviors to a minimum and things probably will go much better.
0: If we look at another uh, rule uh, interpretation or a point of emphasis that the Basketball Rules Committee put out this year was uh, to blow the whistle. And they mean that in accordance to away from the ball, not the guy on the on the ball, but call the fouls that are happening away from the ball.
2: Yeah, we, you know, in the three-person crew, we've really tried to emphasize the center official, the one away from the ball or not on the ball side, to be watching for some illegal screens and some cutters. Um, You know, coaches, right or wrong, coaches actually teach kids to, to chuck the cutters. And to chuck the cutter means I'm just trying to bump them off course so they can't get where they're supposed to be in a timely manner. And that is a foul because it's not allowing the kid, even though they don't have the ball, It's not allowing the kid to have freedom of movement, and that freedom of movement to be able to get to a spot at a certain time to receive a pass obviously messes up the offense. So defensively, that's what you want to do. Offensively, you're a little frustrated when that happens because you're not getting there when you're supposed to, uh, to catch the ball for a shot or a layup or whatever it is. So um, we we do spend a lot of time, and we really harp on our center officials that you need to make sure that you are really engaged in the game and you're watching for off-ball contact. And a lot of that is illegal screens and what we refer to as chucking the cutter. Um, And and so if we can pick up those fouls, and a lot of times we tell our officials, if the center has a good game and is really engaged, the game will be a a, a pretty good game. If the center makes very few calls and isn't engaged with some of those off-ball things, then we tend to have games that are a little bit more physical um, and, and the rough play just kind of starts there and gets worse.
0: And as we look at the rules that we're emphasizing and maybe some changes, there are actual rules, but let's talk about some rules in basketball that, whether it be the palm carry rule or sliding traveling, that you see that people think are the rules. You know, the the fans out there that maybe not know, they're yelling at it. Eh, no, it's not actually the rule. It's kind of the rules missed, as we
2: say. Yeah. Well, they're, they're probably they're, – certainly one of them that I hear a lot is the, the – the people who went over the back called. Um, There there is no such thing as over the back. Either a player, you know, two players went up at the same time, and if there's space between them, you've got nothing. If one pushes the other one in the back, then you have a push in the back. But we don't have anything called over the back. Um, So we hear that, you know, quite a bit, and um, it's really not a foul. The foul would be if someone pushed him in the back, because there very well could be a player over someone's back. Uh, you know, if you've got somebody, you know, 6'2 and you've got a 5'5 person in front of them, they may be over their back, but they might not have pushed them in the back and there may not be a foul there. Um, the other one I think we see quite a bit is, you know, you've got these kids hustling for the ball and they're going, they're sliding on the floor and they've got the ball and they're sliding and everybody wants them to call travel. Well, you, you can't call a travel while they're sliding with the ball. Um, if they've slid with the ball and stopped and then set up or try to get to their knees or something like that, then you have a travel. But just the fact that I've slid to go get a ball and slide an extra five feet with the ball in my hands doesn't constitute a travel. So those are probably the two that I hear people yell about the most in games. Um, but there, there, there are others. Uh, you know, the, what is an illegal drivel? You know, just because the ball goes high doesn't automatically make that a palm. If if my hand stays on top of the ball, I haven't palmed the ball. Um, and, and so, you know, that's one that they like to call or like to have called because they think if the ball went real high on that dribble, it's got to be illegal. And it doesn't have to be.
0: So, those are always fun to analyze the, the myths that people think are rules but aren't. We um, you know, we've gotten a lot of talk this, this year and, and we've been paying attention on social media and whether it be there, newspapers, whatever, about shot clocks in high school basketball. Um, so what is the history that you can tell us as far as the shot clock being in high school basketball? The,
2: sh- the shot clock has been brought up to the National Federation Rules Committee uh, probably every year for the last 10 years. It, it goes to the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee ev- it, it looks at the, the evidence that they have the, from from the statistics that they collect and try to determine whether or not the shot clock is the right thing for the high school game. And, you know, every year for at least the past 10 years that I've been here, it gets put on the list of things that should be adopted at the National Federation level. And so far, every year, it has been voted down by the committee, the, Nat- the National Federation Basketball Rules Committee. Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, there are, we do have eight, eight I believe, states that, that use the shot clock to some extent. Some of them only use it in their biggest classes. Some of them use it in all classes. Generally, most of them use somewhere between a 30 and a 40 point, the 30 and a 42nd shot clock. Um, They're not all consistent, Um, but those states um, know that when they choose to use those rules, they're deviating from the National Federation rule and therefore would not have representation on the rules committee. However, they can propose rules. And they have proposed it. Um, you know, the, the, the states that have been using it, some of them have been using it for 25, 30 years. Some of them have just started using it in the past probably 8 to 10 years. Um, they, they seem to think it works for them. Um, the rules committee that looks at it every year obviously looks at the, the games and, and how many times is the shot clock really going to come into effect there's just been no evidence that the high school game needs a shot clock to get, to get shots off in 35 seconds. Um, I would guess that probably less than 1% of the games, and again, there are thousands of games played every year, but I would guess that less than 1% or 2% of them ever have a situation where the shot clock is going to become a factor. Uh, so, you know, do you, put a, do you add a shot clock just because we've got some games very few that it might actually come into play where we've got a team that may hold the ball at the end of a quarter um, you know th- that's kind of the quandary the other quandaries that go with that you know obviously are cost and it's not really the initial cost to put them in although it'd be several thousand dollars to put shot clocks in but at a time when schools are looking for any way that they can to cut budgets They might get the shot clock in the building and have it set up, but now they've got to find somebody to hire to run that shot clock every night, probably at a price, you know, extra duty pay for schools ranges anywhere from 10 to, I know some, are, are almost $20 an hour, and that person then has to be trained on that and you know do you, do you so we'll just do it for varsity. Well, you know that coaches aren't going to like that because I'm trying to train my JV, my freshmen, my 7th graders, my 8th graders to be able to use that. So every level is going to want to use it and that gets to be a, a lot of expense. Again, not so much for putting it in. Well, that may be several thousand dollars up front. It's generally a one-time cost. It's the having someone there to be able to run it and then train them on how to run that. Uh, and, and, you know, when you watch the collegiate games, you see the number of times that the officials have to go over to the replay monitor to see if the clock got reset correctly. Well, we don't have replay monitors in high school. And um, that just gives adds another thing for officials to have to watch for and for clock operators to have to keep track of. And I think that's been primarily the reason for the reluctance um, the fact that statistically nobody's showing that it's really there's evidence that you you know a shot clock would make our game better and secondly the expense that goes with that at a time when not just Kansas but all schools in all states are struggling um with their funding so i think those are the things that kind of gone into the shot clock um you know I, in the games that i observe very few times does anybody hold it more than 30 seconds um so i think that you know right now um there there is not enough evidence to indicate that a shot clock is going to improve our game or bring back something to our game that we currently don't have.
0: There's certainly much 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 more to it than just saying, "Hey, let's put a clock on the backboard and major the possessions. so
2: yeah. uh, well again the other the other part of it is is you know you there are coaches that you've got to commend. We, you know I know I don't have the the you know the the shot clock favors the more athletic and the more athletic teams. And if I know I don't have a very athletic team, then I may want to try to use a lot, little clock before I shoot the ball because I don't want to give them any more possessions than they're already going to get. So now you're taking away a coaching strategy. Now You may be creating another one, but you're taking away a coaching strategy of being able to give kids the hope that you know, we know we're not as talented, but if we can just do this, we might be in the game at the end. Mm-hmm. So
0: That's some good points there with the shot clock. Uh, before we let you go, uh, state tournaments coming up. Uh, so, anything, any uh, interesting stories out there, or some some venues you want to talk about?
2: Well, we're real excited to be at the at the at Dodge City at the United Wireless Arena. It'll be our first time there. Um, they've hosted some you know great tournaments. The t- the Tournament of Champions that Dodge City has put on for years has been hosted there the past several years, and the Spire Quarry League plays their tournament there. So. You know, I know they'll do a great job. Um, I appreciate Dodge City High School and the Dodge City Sports Commission for taking this on. Um, I think it'll be a a great uh, venue and obviously a little bit of a change of pace for our 1A Division II schools. Um, You know, I I think we have some great basketball environments. Uh, Obviously, playing at WSU is a tremendous thing, and when they are having the season that they're having, and have had for the past two or three years to be in the place where Ron Baker is shooting and Evan Wessel, you know, Evan also played a uh, uh, state tournament there when he was at, at Wichita Heights. So to be on the floor where those kids have been on the floor, um, I think is an exciting thing. And um, you know, all all of our sites do a tremendous job, you know, Emporia with our class one, a division one tournament, um, white auditorium is just a great venue to play basketball. And it gets loud, um, and, and it, it's a great basketball environment. Um, can't say enough about the, the Manhattan Convention and Visitors Bureau and their work with Kansas State University to make Bramlage Coliseum available for us to use. Um, Hutchison, the Hutchison Sports Arena, again, you know, near and dear to my heart. I played college basketball there, so I love the sports arena. Um, but the fact that they, turn, they do our tournament this week, and then they'll turn around on Monday and start the JUCO National Tournament um, you know they're just tremendous people down there that we're working with. Uh, we've enjoyed our uh, our opportunity to be at Park City um, in in the Hartman Arena and and of course the Salina they just do a bang up job for us every year at the Bicentennial Center and take a tremendous amount of pride in doing things. And the Expo Center has done some things to upgrade their facilities in the past couple of years. They put in a new floor. They've got in a new clock. Um, so they've done some things that I think have have improved their facility. Um, and give it a good little bit more of a basketball feel. So, we've got you know eight great sites, and, and our tournament hosts are tremendous. Can't say enough about all the work and all the hours that they put in to to hopefully make our number one goal, and that is to have kids have a tremendous experience in their state tournaments um, if they're lucky enough to make it there.
0: Well, certainly, an exciting time coming to those eight communities, and uh, I guess Fran will probably talk to you. Either about softball or something else coming up, that's for sure. Yeah.
2: Well, Jeremy, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you. And, and, again, I hope that people will get out and support the youth of, of Kansas. It's supposed to be a great week next week for our state tournaments. So uh, please get out there and support those kids and their endeavors. And uh, we'll have a great basketball state tournament.
0: A big thanks to Fran Martin as she organizes this whole spectacle here that we're about to embark on the next four days with the state basketball tournament. Uh, put in a lot of hours over the last few weeks, and I guess I should say just the last few months in, in regard to basketball. So a uh, big thanks to her for taking the time to address some uh, current topics in high school basketball and, and some rules changes that were implemented by the NFHS. Uh, so let's look at some girls' uh, notes here from the state championships. Uh, Bishop Miege qualifying in the 4A tournament. They've won 17 state championships. Uh, this is their 32nd tournament appearance. Uh, they're going for their third undefeated season in school history. Also undefeated in the 4A Division One tournament is Paola, and they'll be going for their first undefeated and championship season in the same year. Also in the 4A Division One tournament is Bueller, who has won seven state championships. So two of the top three state championship winners of in history of girls basketball, and Shawnee Mission Bishop Miege at 17 and Bueller at seven. Those two are in the top three of all time. So definitely some history involved in the 4A Division One tournament. Uh, something to look forward to there in Salina. And, of course, a big topic of discussion is the Hoxie 1 and the 1A Division one tournament in Poria, as they have set a state record 92 straight wins and going for their third straight undefeated season, which would tie Little River uh, for the most all-time in, in the history of Kansas State basketball. If they were to remain undefeated, obviously that would be their fourth consecutive state title and their fifth title overall couple other things of note is uh, St. Thomas Aquinas girls making their 21st consecutive state appearance uh, for the Saints there. And, and in 3A, the 23-0 Heston girls, they're looking to go back-to-back. And in 6A, undefeated is Mays at 22-0, going for their first title. The other undefeated is Cimarron going for their second title, and the first one was back in 1998. This would be their first undefeated season. Big thanks to Carol Swenson on helping out with those history facts there for our state basketball tournament. Uh, Now we're going to go talk to Brent Unruh about a sports medicine moment for those basketball players and also just uh, some tidbits for those wrestler players from last week
3: about what to do uh, for nutrition-wise and sports medicine. In today's Sports Medicine Minute, we're going to talk just a little bit about proper rest and proper recovery for athletes. This is appropriate uh, at this time of the year with state basketball tournaments coming up just around the corner and just having state wrestling tournaments and things like that. It's important when you're having these kinds of activities where you're having multiple events over a short amount of time or multiple uh, bouts in a day when it comes to wrestling that the athletes are focused and pay attention to the right rest and right recovery. So some things uh, athletes need to be thinking about and coaches need to be thinking about is as you're leading up to some of these events, uh, some things you want to stress to your athletes. Um, Number one is get plenty of sleep. Um, it's really important that um, you get on a normal sleep cycle and um, get kind of a normal sleep rhythm going. Um, you can't make up for lost sleep. There's a lot of people that um, you know might think, "Hey, if I only get three or four hours of sleep one night, well, I'll make up for it the next day and sleep in and get 12 hours of sleep." And that's not good for your body. Your body's still going to be very tired and lethargic. So you need to get in a normal sleep rhythm with the proper amounts of rest each night. Um, another thing to think about is to stay hydrated make sure you're hydrating yourself um, for several days leading up to these events. Avoid caffeine, um, just try to stay with uh, healthier options like sports drinks and water um, and that kind of stuff. Um, Also just you know eat a good normal healthy diet. Uh, You want to eat a lot of just well-balanced foods, um, a lot of whole grains, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruits, things like that. Trying to stay away from some of the high fat and high fatty foods um, that that just aren't going to help you a lot when it comes to um, getting the right energy level built up in your body. Um, once the event arrives, um, again, it's important to keep all these things in mind, but there are some other things you want to think about as well. Again, it's important to make sure you're getting the right amount of sleep each night. Uh, You don't want to forget about that. Uh, But be sure that, you know, you're taking advantage of your breaks. So if you're a wrestler, if you're a volleyball player, and you've got multiple events going on in a day, you know, when you get that hour, you get that two hours between events, find a place where you can kind of lay down, stretch out, get your feet up, and let your body relax. Um, Again, from the nutrition side, real important stay hydrated throughout the day, um, avoid the caffeine. Um, those things are just gonna be, be, a, be a real help to you if you can do that um, and stay away from some of that stuff that, like the caffeine that's just not gonna not gonna be any help for you at all. Make sure you're eating a lot of easy to digest foods throughout the day. You know when you've got multiple events going on or you've got multiple games coming up over the course of two or three days. Um, try to stay away from some of the real heavy fatty foods as that's just going to kind of slow you down and make you lethargic um, one good thing you can do for your legs, if you can have access to any type of cold tub, even if you just fill up your bathtub with some cold water, and after a game, if you can just go sit in that for 10 minutes or so, it's a great way to kind of get your legs back and kind of refresh those, those legs for the next day. Also, just doing some real simple, light, lower extremity stretching, just getting the hamstrings, the quads, the calves. Just spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes in the evening after your game, just going through some easy stretching, and the same thing in the morning when you get up. Um, just take some time and just get your body stretched out really good. And warm-ups are even more important when you're, when you're going through these periods of time with, with a lot of competitions over a short amount of time. Um, you may need to spend a little extra time getting your body warmed up, um, you know, do some light jogging, do some light stretching, get a little sweat going before you try to go at, at a full maximum level because your body's going to be a little more tired, a little more sore, and just needs a little extra time to get going. But if you pay attention to all these factors, you should you should be in pretty good shape and will hopefully give your athletes, you know, the best opportunity to perform at their highest level, which is obviously what everyone's after this time of the year. We'll jump into our last segment of the podcast, and that is Clint Stoppel of the Heston A D,
0: who has both his girls team and boys team looking to repeat state championships at three A this year. And also an interesting perspective because he also hosted Substate just a week ago.
1: Well, I, I think the first thing just the, the the enormous amount of uh work that really went into uh getting ready for substate here. Uh this is my third year doing this job, so it was one of those things where uh you know, it was my first time to actually host one. I mean, you know, we've always gotten to travel elsewhere. Uh so I didn't really I think grasp fully how much work was gonna go into that and just how many people we would need, you know, behind the scenes doing things for us that uh that just had to be done. And for me, you know, we've got a great group of people that we work with here uh, that just stepped up and, and did what we need to do to get it done. Um, and just making sure that I had everything out to all the schools. And then to remember to actually send out my stuff that was supposed to uh, go to the schools we played in the first round. That was, you know, it was, it was hectic at times, but you know, at, at the end of it, it was, it was really good to be able to be home. And host that, uh, that was the big thing. I think was just our our uh, community was able to come out and support our teams, so and not have to go anywhere, which was nice this year.
0: I think that you touched on a, a big thing that I think state, or excuse me, sub-state managers realize is that they they get they got everything set and ready to go for the games that they'll actually host. But like you said, sometimes oh oh no, I forgot. There's you know there's some a couple first round games that I need to pay attention to as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and that was that was you know the, the aha moment for me in the in that was those first two uh, games we had for the girls and the guys at home, was the fact that you know I had almost completely forgot well I need to send out my normal, hosting and uh, letter that we usually send out and I had I think it was Sunday evening uh, before we played Monday that I remembered to get that to uh, the team we were playing so some of those things you know I hope next time I won't forget but uh, it gets a little crazy.
0: Well, I guess, uh, so, uh, Saturday night comes around and, and you got two championship games going on that your school is involved in. Um, and the, you know, uh, the Swathers pull off both, both victories and, and qualify both boys and girls who take, take us back to that moment of, of all of a sudden your mind starts thinking, okay, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. What was your timeline like?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, the biggest thing for us first half was I think I saw about two minutes of the game, uh, running around, making sure our gates had uh, money and, and, uh, change to give back to people. As they were still coming in. So I literally probably saw about two minutes of the first half. I was able to sneak in at quarter and see what was going on. Uh, you know, probably about the end of the third quarter, I uh, was when I began to start thinking about getting the flags out and, and getting everything in line for that. Uh, and you know, just, a. At that point, you know, it, it's uh that last six minutes of the game went pretty fast, uh, in my mind because of all the things that needed to happen uh to close out the girls game and then of course, you know, you're trying to get get that all done and let the team celebrate uh as much as you can before the next game starts because you know the reality of it was we still had another game to go that night, so uh and then get to do it again, you know, with, with the boys uh finals that night. So uh it was, you know, Pretty pretty fast-paced, I guess, on the court and also just behind the scenes as we were trying to make sure everything went smoothly and we got people in and out, and, and everybody hopefully as happy as we can make them.
0: Give us a little, without stating obviously the obvious of excitement that's going on in Heston the last couple of years, but uh, both boys and girls win 3A last year and they're both returning this year, but what is the feeling there in Heston about uh, the basketball programs going on?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think our, our kids and, uh, you know, not just the community, our kids here at the school uh, are really excited about not just the chance, you know, uh, I, I think our kids kind of understand that this doesn't happen. You know, even a single team getting to state doesn't happen, you know, every every year, and those things kind of, you know, I don't think as a school district that we, or even as a community we've taken for granted, I hope. Uh, there's a lot of people that are really excited to be heading back to Hutch. Um, we kind of joke that you know, the last person out on uh, Wednesday night and Thursday night, we'll need to shut the shut the door and lock it because uh, we traveled really well last year, and I would anticipate that our our community would support us again the way they did last year. Uh, you know, it's it's fun. Uh, it's it's a it's a tougher road to go though. I know too, because you know there are a lot of quality uh, 3A basketball boys teams this year, and there are some really good girls teams. So. You know, our, our kids, our players and, and everybody, they're excited to be going again. Uh, but you know, our, our our players know that it's gonna to be tough to to even, you know, do a, what we did last year would be crazy if, if it happened again. But uh, you know, I, I think everybody's kinda of grounded knowing that it's gonna be a tough road.
0: And a tough road and just looking ahead, Heston girls at twenty three and the one seed, they'll face Galena, uh, the eight seed and they're fourteen and nine at Wednesday at six thirty and in the boys first round game uh, for Heston, they're 21 and two at the four seed, and they'll take on Wichita Collegiate, who is 20 and three, and that's Thursday at 8:15. Um, yeah. And you said, you know, obviously the whole town's going to be there, and that's that's obviously great for a, for a school to do. And uh, a Hutch from Heston, what we're talking 40 minutes tops, and yeah, uh, about so. 44. I guess that's one thing, a good thing about going to 3A in Hutch is, as an AD, you don't really have to worry about too many uh, hotel arrangements. Um,
1: uh, we, yeah, it's kind of funny because if we bounce to, you know, 4A, we're not going to have to worry, you know, travel-wise, and, and growing up in a small town in Southwest Kansas, you know, when we went to state, it was always hotels, and that was kind of a unique experience for us when we were in high school, but, you know, I... I can see a lot of benefit, too, where our kids will be in their beds at home. It'll be a normal night, and hopefully that will carry over for them to the game, too. Is it'll just be another basketball game instead of kind of some of the hoopla that sometimes happens with state.
0: What, what kind of hand have you had in the game as far as uh, these last couple of days, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, making T-shirts about heading to state or any arrangements that you've made uh, for the public? or what, what have you had your hand in?
1: Uh, Well, you know, just helping coordinate a little bit with our booster club. Uh, They do a lot of the T-shirt stuff for us and and take care of that stuff on that end for us. Uh, And then, you know, just their support then in turn. They they, uh, donate a lot of of time effort and a lot of money back to the programs and to our kids so that they get to do a lot of the things they get to do. So, you know, just helping make sure uh, that that's getting done. And then just kind of some of the PR stuff for them, letting the community know through Twitter and through our website, you know, what's going on. Uh, not with just game times, but when they're selling t-shirts and all the other things they're doing. So,
0: All right. Well, Clint, we won't hold you too much longer. Um, thanks for, for doing this. Uh, it's a good insight for people to know just what – th- what a, exactly an athletic director does when teams qualify, let alone two teams qualifying. Um, so uh, thanks for stepping in, and I know you got a busy week ahead of you. Uh, obviously, like you said, most of the work's pretty much done, but uh, uh, definitely yeah, an exciting yeah. week to come.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, appreciate you calling me.
0: That'll do it for this edition of the KSHSAA podcast. Uh, the, uh, the 3A state championships for both boys and girls will be streamed live for free Uh, For all our viewers at the kshsaanetwork.com and also some TV versions out there. Uh, 6A will have Cox 22 live TV of the championship games on Saturday and also the four semifinal games on Friday. Good luck to all the teams out there and fans, go out and support your local communities.